0: Please pray with me. Lord God, this morning we ask for your help not to be afraid. We pray that we would let ourselves be fully known and fully loved by you. Lord God, we pray for the one who preaches, for you know she is a sinner. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, My name is Sarah Condon, and um, which... I know most of you, but if you're visiting this morning, I'm married to Josh Condon, the head pastor, priest, rector, whatever word we're going to use, um, and I'm ordained, so they don't just let anyone waltz up here, just so you know, I feel, just, if the spirit moves you, you have to stay in your seat, so... Um, Uh, My first job as an ordained person was at St. Luke's Hospital here in Houston. I served as a hospital chaplain, and I really, truly loved the work, but I didn't know much about it before I took the job. Um, One thing I quickly learned was that hospital chaplains are often assigned floors, and they can serve those floors for months or even years at a time. Um, so you would work the same floor day in and day out and see some of the same patients come and go and, in your course of serving there. Upon starting, I learned that I would be the appointed chaplain for the liver floor. And I do want to start by being really clear that there are a lot of different reasons you can end up on the liver floor. Um, you can have hepatitis. Uh, You could have liver disease or have had a transplant. But I would say that a solid 60% of the patients that I saw on the liver floor were there because um, they struggled in their relationship with alcohol and had over the course of their lives. Um, They were alcoholics and the damage done to their livers meant that they were in and out for treatment pretty regularly. Um, Now, I did not know this about them because they told me. Um, Because for the first few months of my ministry, these people typically would scream me out of the hospital room. Um, I would walk in in a collar and it just would not go well. Uh, There were signs that I knew immediately that I was dealing with someone who was an alcoholic. First and this was key, I would introduce myself as a chaplain and they would scream back, oh, hell no, nah, I don't want you in here. And the second sign would be that they would have John Wayne movies on the television in their hospital room. I know that sounds like very far-fetched, but it, it, almost in every case, there would be John Wayne movies on the television. Um, I knew that these people had troubled relationships with alcohol because their medical charts told me that, not because they had told me. And I do want to say this morning, you're not going to get a glorious story from me about how I somehow, as a naive, very young, newly ordained person, convinced one of these people to tell me the truth about themselves and that they found Jesus under my, you know, very capable care. That definitely did not happen. Um, I learned kind of techniques. I learned to show up with uh, two cups of bad hospital coffee, right, and, and styrofoam, and to hand one to them and have one for myself and to gesture towards the television Google was my friend, and say things like, true grit, you know, a classic. I would just list off John Wayne movies. Um, And I would sit with them and watch the movie for a few moments, uh, tell them I was praying for them, and leave. And that was the extent of any ministry I did for them. But for me, these precious people, precious people that I was able to spend time with, they embodied a reality that we all face. And it's a reality that we see in the scriptures assigned for today. And I think that reality is summed up in a question. And that question is this, what are we most afraid of? What are we most afraid of? I think in this year of our Lord 2022, everything is a really good answer, right? We're afraid of everything. But perhaps this list hits one for you. Perhaps we're afraid of our self-righteousness, which is why we cling to it, or our anger, which we constantly feel the need to justify. Perhaps it's judgment, doubts, mistrust. I think that all of these emotions are honestly just fear with a fancy dress on, right? And I'm convinced that the only way to really face these fears, this fear in us, is to believe that God is for us. When we meet Isaiah in the Hebrew Scriptures this morning, it is clear that he does not know if God is for him or not. Isaiah was afraid. And I I want you to see what Isaiah saw when he encountered God. It's in the first sentence, I think, of our reading. I mean, it's easy to skip over this incredible imagery that we get, but don't, because it tells us that the hem of God's robe fills the temple. So imagine this for a moment in this space, in Holy Spirit, that this whole sanctuary is filled with fabric. I mean, what, just what a beautiful, beautiful image. I and mean, it makes me think of the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk. It makes me think of one of my favorite children's books, uh, Roald Dahl's BFG, right? This, this giant, gentle presence. We are so small by contrast. It makes me think of being a child, it makes me think of being afraid of being vulnerable. Isaiah is certainly thinking these things because he says, woe is me, right? And this would be a normal response. This is the God that he is encountering in this moment. Surely, surely God would know Isaiah and squash him, right? And yet that is not what happens. And I know this sounds crazy, I know, but scripture sounds crazy, so just go with it, okay? An angel comes to Isaiah in this intimate moment and, and holds a hot coal, touches a hot coal to Isaiah's lips. It's so beautiful. And says, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin has been blotted out. Now God could have blotted Isaiah out, cast him down, made him feel guilty, made him pay for his sins, right? But he said, do not be afraid. I know you. I love you. I have made you for a purpose. And most importantly, you are forgiven. And honestly, it really feels like the same story Um, that we get in the gospel assigned for today. So so the fishermen, they're at the end of their day, and Jesus shows up. They are tired and sweaty, and who wants to have a religious experience at 7 p.m. after a hard day of work? I definitely would not, right? But there's Jesus, and he's saying, get back in. Take the boat a little further. And Simon Peter is like, yeah, we've already done that, but whatever, you know, like, let's do it again. Um, which I just want to pause here because I love this moment from Simon Peter. Uh, tradition tells us that, that he is the first bishop of the church. So I want us to know that his response to Jesus is basically, this is dumb, but I'll do it, right? Right? you do not need to have a sufficient amount of faith that is not in the bible that is like a human construct we've made up to tell each other to control each other to make each other feel bad or whatever that's not there what we see in scripture right is is god intervening even if there's almost no faith right because the truth is that this is not an act of faith Peter is fully anticipating pulling up an empty net. He all but says that to Jesus in the text. God can work with anything. It's amazing. And so they pull up so much fish. They pull up so much fish that the boat begins to sink. And what does Simon Peter say then? And it feels very weird that this is what he says, right? But, I mean, it makes sense. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's like Jesus saw his medical chart, if you know what I mean. You know, he knew in that moment. He's like, if Jesus knows this about me, then Jesus knows everything. Jesus could have cut Simon Peter down right there on the spot, tossed him into the water, right, used him as a teachable moment, For the rest of the disciples, you know, this is what happens when you're a faithless person, fellas. Like, this is what Jesus could have done. But instead, Jesus says this. Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be fishers of people. Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. I love you. I made you for a purpose. You are forgiven. And I think this is perhaps the crux of our fear, that God would fully know us, and that in fully knowing us, we would be rejected. Isn't that our greatest fear, to look love in the face and to be told that we are unlovable? I think that's probably 80% of childhood trauma, right? I think that's why divorce can be so painful. It's it's our worst fear coming to life. But the gospel tells us that we have to be fully known by God in order to be fully forgiven. And we don't get to set the ground rules for what that looks like. We don't have any control as to what that looks like. God... Doesn't sheepishly walk into a hotel room, uh, you know, of an or a hotel room, a hospital room of an alcoholic, right, with a bad cup of coffee and and like a limited knowledge of Western cinema. You know, that's not how God works. God, we see in the text, swoops in and knows the person, knows us, knows our sins and our fears, knows who we have hurt, and how we have been hurt by others, God knows that we so often choose against our best interests. But when God fully sees us, we find real purpose. And instead of anger, we are met with a capital G, giant's gentleness. Okay? That's what we see in the scripture, a giant's gentleness. God touches our lips and says, This day, you have been made innocent. Instead of being haunted by the life we accidentally waste, and we all accidentally waste so much of our lives, instead of being haunted by that, God says, I am the resurrection and the life, and I've come to tell you that your life still has purpose in me, will always have purpose in me. And ultimately, friends, we are told not to be afraid. Because instead of the rejection that we all fear the most, we are met with the face of a loving Savior. Amen.